In this episode of Ask Paul Curtly, as well as me wearing a somewhat silly looking hat, we're going to be talking about tinders for flint and steel, shelter roofs being strong enough for snow, smocks versus anoraks, where are the woods you can freely bushcraft in the UK, while camping in northwest England, being blinded by headlamps and foundational bushcraft knowledge. Welcome, welcome to episode 46 of Ask Paul Kirtley and the first Ask Paul Kirtley of 2017. So happy new year to you, happy new year. Hopefully you had a good festive season and a good new year and you're looking to looking to start the uh, the year with lots of energy. Um, I'm out for a hike today, it's another cold day and I seem to have mislaid my normal stripy brown woolly hat. Um, it's in the pocket of a jacket somewhere, but um, this is a hat that I often take canoeing with me, but it does make me look like a bit of a, um, what my Australian uh, girlfriend Amanda would call a bit of a gumby, um, but it's warm and, um, and I like it. So very good in the mountains, very good on a cold day on the side of a river when you've been canoeing as well and it's a bit windy but yeah it does make you look a bit odd um, but I like these I like these mountain caps anyway um, one thing I realized last week um, was that I had so much stuff to talk about and there were so many questions and there were a number of um, number of questions in my list that all started bushcraft this bushcraft event bushcraft course I missed the question I said I was going to talk about it in the in the pre-roll and I didn't and it's about bushcraft shows and events in 2017 um, and so I thought I'd better get that one in early and it's the first it's the first episode of 2017 as well. I was going to do this one last time so apologies if that was confusing. This is from Tinks Wright and and Tinks has been on one of my courses in the woods in in Sussex. She's done our elementary course and she very much enjoyed it. And um, I first met Tinks at uh, first met her in person as opposed to online at um, at last year's bushcraft show, at 2016 bushcraft show. And um, Tinks's question is very much in that vein. Her question is: Hi Paul, just thinking ahead to next year, well, this year now, 2017, and wondered what shows you may be speaking at or recommended visiting. Last year we went to the bushcraft magazine May meet in in Kent which was a lovely small event, which our kids loved, the Bushcraft and Survival magazine, uh, so we could see you speak, and the Wilderness Gathering, which we ran children's workshops at. Any others that you know of that are family friendly uh, that you can recommend or may be at? Thanks again, and hope to be on the Axecraft course later this year. Um, well, um, I think you've kind of got the main UK ones covered. You know, there are three there are three bushcraft um, publications in the UK, uh, Bushcraft and Survival Skills magazine, which organised the bushcraft show. And there is the bushcraft, the small bushcraft magazine, which have a small event, which you talked about. Um, you can you can find them online and I've heard good things about that event. The people involved are very, very nice. I've never been to that one myself, although I know some of the people who were involved in that and they're, and they're good people. Um, and then there's also the Wilderness Gathering, which of course uh, garners a lot of a lot of attention. It's not one that um, I have to be honest. I've never been to the Wilderness Gathering, and the reason I've never been to the Wilderness Gathering is even though Roger Harrington's contacted me a few times about going, and a lot of people that work in the industry every year they ask me if I'm going. It always comes at a really difficult time for me. I'm busy teaching all summer and in particular in July and August which isn't just good summer months to be teaching there's lots going on with trees and plants out in the woods in terms of foraging and in terms of using different natural resources it's also the school holidays so there's a lot of people who 
are on holiday at that time of year, particularly teachers, um, as well as people that are involved in uh, university education who have more time in the summer. So it's a very busy time for me over the summer. And then I'm often doing canoe trips in Canada in September. So trying to squeeze the the wilderness gathering and in between for me is 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 nine on impossible and it has been for the last decade so unfortunately i've never been to the wilderness gathering lots of people i know do go and they really enjoy it um my uh, my friend danny reed who has the bushcraft journal that i write for as well they have a nice stall there so there's lots to do there and i and i would recommend it um just on the basis of the people who go and and what you can do there but i've never been myself and i won't be there this year unfortunately i will be at the bushcraft show at the end of may um, Frontier Bushcraft, my company, are a main sponsor of the Bushcraft show this year. I'll be doing some main stage talks. Um, there may be a live Ask Paul Kirtley in there somewhere as well, so keep your eye out for that. We're going to have a stall, we're going to do some demos. Spoons is going to be there with me and a few of the other gang from Frontier. And we're also hoping to have Ray Goodwin along with us as well. Exactly what he's going to be doing, we're not quite sure yet. Um, maybe some, maybe some um, sessions on the lake and probably a talk on the main stage as well but we'll we'll all be there so that's a good spot to come and see us if you want to sandra as well as everybody else thinks um, um in terms of other ones i am going to the winter uh, bushcraft meet in um in holland in the netherlands um very very soon um in january i've not been to that one before but looking forward to that looking forward to meeting everybody there i know a lot of people from the netherlands follow this show and follow my blog so i'm looking forward to meeting um many of you there um, and then the other event that I'll be going to this year is the Bushcraft Festival in Sweden. I went to the inaugural one last year. I was guest speaker at the inaugural um, Bushcraft Festival and I'll be going again and that's in the late summer. I'll be going to that one. So um, some good events coming up. The only, the only UK event that I'm going to is the bushcraft show smack bang in the middle of the year end of may it's a good time for me it's in between our sort of busy easter period april and the may bank holiday the early may bank holiday that period in the spring is normally busy for us and then kind of busy june july august september october with a lot of other things that we do so bushcraft show always works well for us and as i say we're a main sponsor of that this year and i'd and i'd recommend you to come and say hi if you can um but if anybody has any other events, local events or country fairs, if there are country fairs that you think are particularly well suited to people who are interested in bushcraft or woodcraft or country crafts, Bodger's Ball is a good one um, that people go to, a, a green uh, woodworking um, fair, if you like. Um, I don't know how kid-friendly it is. There's, um, there's a fair amount of sharp tools and, um, and, and uh, ale drinking and cider drinking and things that go on, but um, it's a good event and there's a lot of very skillful people there. So um, if anybody has any ideas of other events around the subject or skill sets, put them in the comments below. Um, you know, it isn't just about my knowledge here. There's a ton of you out there who know useful things and have got lots of information that you can share with other people that watch these and listen to these. So whether you're watching on YouTube, leave comments underneath. Whether you're watching on my blog or listening via my blog, leave comments underneath and share other good events, preferably with a link. And if it doesn't post immediately, sometimes when you post comments on my blog with a link in them and on YouTube as well for that matter, uh, for some reason the system thinks it's spam and it gets held in a moderation queue. Um, just put it, put it on there anyway. If it doesn't appear immediately, I'll, I will find it in the moderation queue at some point and post it if it's a genuine, if it's a genuine link. Cool. Right. Let's get on with the questions. Um, I'm at the end of a walk today. It's quite cold and it, we're going to be losing the light soon. So I may have to switch on to infrared, but I'll try and avoid that. Um, I'm going to run through these questions quickly. Um, question is about tinders for flint and steel hi paul my first question of ask paul kirtley so hopefully you will fit it in one day um, and this is from um, ian facey um, i bought a, a hudson's bay fire kit and love it i've practiced with char cloth and various other stuff including cramp balls my question to you is when i have no char cloth or cramp balls i do not seem to be able to get a fire with the flint and steel what would you suggest when out in the field cramp balls 
only seem to work straight off the tree at certain times. Anyway, many thanks, Paul, for your, uh, from your biggest fan, the Facemeister. Um, you do a great job, and I'm sure that many, like me, are thankful for all your hard work. Just thinking, I'm going to bring my microphone. So apologies for the scrumpling here. I put my big jacket over the top and didn't move my microphone. So apologies if it's been muffled up to this point. Um, it shouldn't be now. I've moved my microphone out. So Face's question, he's used char cloth, he's used cramp balls. Um, what else can he use with flint and steel? Well, it, that, that does pose a very good question about flint and steel. Flint and steel sparks are, um, compared to a modern fire steel, a ferro rod, they're cooler and they're smaller typically. And so the range of things that you can light with them is more limited than the range of things that you can light with a modern um, ferro rod. That said, they were a very reliable means of lighting fire that people carried with them on trips and used in their homes. But what you generally need to do is prepare some material when you've got your, when you've got your first fire prepare some material for your next fire. There are not so many materials that you can just go and get from nature. And that's the, that's the essence of your question. There aren't so many. That's what's given rise to your question. And, and you're right, there aren't so many that you can just go and get. Cramp balls, if, when you break them off, typically dead ash, you break them off. If they feel really light, like expanded polystyrene, they're, they're quite dry. There's not a lot of moisture in there and they'll, they may well light straight away. If they've got any moisture in them, which they often have, they'll feel heavier than that and you'll need to wait for them to dry out. Um, and so that probably explains the variability in your ability to light them with a, with a flint and steel. Um, char cloth is, is very good, but remember what char cloth is. Char cloth is a charred plant material. You, the, the, the cloths that work are cotton, um, linen, silk, um, although I don't know many people who use silk, but silk does work. Um, I typically use old tea towels or old, old jeans, old t-shirts, those sorts of things that, you've, that you would be throwing out otherwise, that have got holes in them or smelly and knackered and what have you. They, they make really good char cloth. Um, but it's a charred plant fibre. And so that's the, that's the kind of key to what you're doing there is that you've got a charred plant fibre that, that you're then dropping a spark into that will then rekindle um, and you can grow as a small ember and then you can add it to something else um, we've talked a lot uh, we talked in the last episode about um, fibrous materials for taking bow drill embers at the same skill set um, put it in there blow it into flame so what works well um, any any plant material that you can char so take if you've got a little brass tin um, with your fire lighting kit that's what the tin is partly for that you you, you, you set fire to some plant materials, you pop it in, you snuff it out, you exclude the oxygen, you get some charred material. And on the edges of it where it's charred, you can drop it and the tin helps keep it free from moisture as well because moisture really is, as you know with your char cloth, if it soaks up too much moisture, it's not going to work very well. So moisture is sort of the enemy. Keep it sealed from moisture, then drop a spark into that charred material, it starts smouldering, you take it to your tinder bundle you get your next fire going and so on and so forth so things like cattail seed heads um, some of the some of the downy seed heads work well fibrous plant materials that are dry that you can char without completely obliterating as soon as they're on on fire um, lots of different materials once you think of it in those terms there's lots of things that you can start to use um, but it, it the, the, but you have to get into that routine of take something with you when you first go light your fire with that and then you've then got to take something else in nature and char it and then take that with you for your next fire and that was typically how it was how it was used and the tinder it's not something that's going to burst into flames it's just something that's going to catch and hold that spark as a small ember which you can then grow and blow into flames using other materials you get from around you in, in nature dried grass bracken um what did we talk about last time um, goose grass, cleavers, uh, sticky willies, whatever you want to call it. I think I just heard a kingfisher, which is nice. Shelter roof strong enough for snow. This is from Charles in Canada and he says hey Paul honestly I don't know if you can even answer this question 
<laughs> well, thanks for sending it anyway. Um, my, me and a friend of mine are building a long-term shelter here in Canada. We get a lot of snow in the winter, but this is the primary use for the shelter, winter camping. We started it about a week ago, but in that time, my friend went out to our location while I was at work and put up the third wall. The problem is he made the wall the same height as all the others. He worked very hard on it and I don't want to tear it down. Would a flat roof cause an issue with snow? We average about 1.5 to 2.5 meters of snow in the winter but i don't think we will get that much in our location do you have any tips in how we can make it strong enough to hold at least a meter it's about four meters wide and six meters long well i think a flat roof might be a problem flat roofs are generally a problem if you put too much weight on them um, but structurally it's going to be a problem. I think it's also going to be a problem when the snow comes to melt um, because the water is just going to drip through the roof um, and that's going to make the inside of that shelter very damp as opposed to having a, leaning, a sloping roof where if you build it thick enough, even though the material is going to be dripping through it, by the time it gets to the inside it's going to be quite low down. Um, so that's going to be part of your issue. Strength-wise, um, that's just a, you know, it's a bit of a how long is a piece of string question because I don't know the materials you're using, I don't know the, 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 the diameters, I don't know the strengths of the, of the woods that you're using because I don't know which woods you're using. But what I would say is a snow is made of water. Uh, and this isn't meant to be patronizing, it's just a logical way of thinking about it. Snow is made of water. Um, a cubic meter of water is a thousand liters and a liter of water weighs a kilo. So a cubic meter of water weighs one metric ton. Snow, um, if you know anything about snow, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but in terms of say knowledge of snow from the mountains and avalanches and how much snow weighs, um, depending on the density of the snow, so depending on how much air it's got in it, depending on how much water soaked into it, snow is going to weigh between something like three, 250, 300 kilograms per cubic meter to maybe six or 700 kilograms per cubic meter. So you can, if you know the depth of snow that you've got, say you reckon 1.5 to 2.5, but you don't think you'll get that much. Say you only got a meter, yeah, and then your roof is six, four by six, that's 24 meters. 24 meters by a meter thick, so that's 24 cubic cubic meters. And say you had a medium density of snow on the top, so say it weighed 500 kilograms per cubic meter, you're gonna have 12 tons of snow on top of that shelter. Um, is it gonna be strong enough to hold 12 tons? That's the question you're asking. I don't know, because I haven't seen your shelter, but those are the sort of um, masses that you're, you're playing with. Um, clearly, um, if you've just got it propped up at the side and you've got cross beams going across that, um, it's gonna be weakest in the middle, it's gonna bow, it may then just collapse, it may bow in the middle and just all fall in. You know, you asked this question back in October, you've probably got snow on it, you probably know the answer to this now, or you maybe have changed it, but just as a general principle, sloping roofs are good for snow because you don't get as much snow sitting on top and sloping roofs are good when the snow comes to melt or it rains or you get sleet or before it snows properly because then you don't get wet in the shelter. So those are some of my, some of my thoughts there. Um, part of it's a mathematical structural engineering problem and part of it is just a, 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 a thinking about what happens either side of when you get the snow. You're gonna get rain and sleet and then you're gonna get snow and then you're gonna get melt water in the spring. And if you want it to be a long-term shelter, you need it to be able to cope with all of those different circumstances. Smocks versus anoraks. Question from Brian Legat. Hi, Brian, good to hear from you. Um, hi, Paul. Uh, first as usual, thank you for your content and generosity in providing it. Um, well, as always, Brian, you're very, very welcome. And Brian's another one who's done some of my online training as well and, and found it very beneficial. Um, at the time of writing, I've just listened to episode 41 of Ask Paul Kirtley and would like to hear your thoughts 
your thoughts on your preference between half zip smock style jackets and full zip ones. Personally, I've always favoured smocks, thinking that they are more windproof, waterproof, but then do find them awkward to get on and off, especially when the pockets are full. Does your experience suggest that there is a benefit of one style over another? Thanks, Brian. Um, well, we talked about um, putting stuff in jacket pockets versus putting things elsewhere, sort of, in the previous episode. Um, I, I do like to have a few things in jacket pockets, particularly if it's weather where you're wearing a jacket all the time, you know, winter, um, windy conditions, um, in the woods to protect warm layers, you know, a few things in jacket pockets are good. I don't like to stuff my jacket pockets with things other than maybe some, you know, dumping a load of birch bark in for, for, for as and when I see it as I'm wandering around. Um, but I think your question is more about zips and how far they zip down. I think the big advantage to something that which doesn't zip all the way down is that if the zip breaks, you then are just not open to the elements. And that's really, really important in circumstances where that could mean life or death. That's really important in cold conditions. Um, personally, when I'm in significantly sub-zero, so, so, you know, in the northern forest in winter, um, I like to have a over-the-head smock. I like one that's quite long, or that can be quite long, but that can also be bloused up a bit. And um, it has, uh, as well as a zip, it has some Velcro or other toggle fastening, so that even if the zip is broken, or jams, or there's some other problem with it, that I can still close it up reasonably well, um, without being open to the elements and open to snow coming in and cold coming in and all of those sorts of things. So I think that's the major advantage is that it's not as dependent upon the zip to stay closed, particularly if you've got some secondary closing up towards the top. Um, zips will break from time to time. Modern zips are pretty good. I rarely have zips break, but they do sometimes break. Um, so that's always an issue. If you've got a jacket that... Um, is dependent upon giving you any sort of seal against the weather and it's entirely dependent upon the zip that's always an issue so even just having a velcro bit you know pressed it at the bottom pressed it at the top and velcro over that can be enough to keep it reasonably well closed as long as you're not putting a lot of stress on it um, that and a zip can be fine but if it's just a zip and you really really need to rely on it maybe go for a half zip smock rather than um, rather than something, uh, something, uh, something else. The other thing with with smocks, where the zips don't go all the way down, just as an afterthought, back to pockets, is that they do allow kind of more kangaroo-style pockets, that, that which might be useful for putting a map in. You might have hand warmer pockets that you can bring your hands in together. Um, my winter smock, the one that we had, Ian and I had um, custom made by Snow Sled before Snow Sled stopped making Ventile clothing. Um, that smock has um, pockets that you can put your hands in um, from the outside, but you can also put your hands in from the inside. Um, there's a compartment in the middle and your hands can go all the way through. There's like sub little pockets in there for a compass and those sorts of bits and pieces as well. So they don't get um, lost in amongst other things, but you can put mittens in, you can put your hands in from the outside, you can pull your hands in through the sleeves and the zips on the inside and you can put your hands, get to items from the inside of your of your clothing as well. So that's that's quite handy. Um, when the zip on the front, the closure zip doesn't go all the way down, you've got more to play with here in terms of pocket arrangements and compartments as well, which can be handy in different circumstances. Right, it is getting dark. Okay, question from, from, who's this from? Vladimir. Vladimir asks, and this is about woods for bushcraft activities in the UK. So Vladimir asks, hi Paul, thank you for doing your job on sharing and educating people like me who have a passion for bushcraft and nature but lacking the knowledge and skill. My question is about getting into bushcraft or hiking and camping in the UK. I've read your article about gaining an access to the land and similar issues. I will link it here in the top of um, YouTube and I'll link it in the show notes on my blog as well. Go and find Ask Paul Kirtley episode 46 for a link through to the article. The article is on my blog, how to find a place to practice bushcraft in the UK is what it's called. Um, and that's the article I think that Vladimir is, re is, is referring to. Um, 
So he says, I've read your article about gaining an access to the land and similar issues. Unfortunately, it wasn't very helpful in my case. Oh. And I feel if you were able to give me and others some advice on that and share your experience, I would be grateful. Well, I did, Vladimir, in that article, that was my advice. But anyway, basically, all I want to do um, outdoors is to practice making a fire and a shelter, navigation and some other basic skills, not including hunting, trapping or fishing. I live in London. Is there in the, is there in UK any woods to freely do this kind of activities and who I can contact to gain some information or permission if it is a national park? The fact that I need a landowner's permission in most cases just makes it impossible because I have no idea how to track him. And as you said in your article, almost certainly he will just say no. Well, I didn't quite say that in my article. I'll come back to that. Um, there are thousands of people who go hiking and bushcrafting and I want to be part of them. Please, Paul, if you could give some advice on that or refer me to a source which could be helpful, um, I'll be very thankful. Um, well, I'm sorry you didn't find the article as useful as, as you might have done, um, but I can't change the law in the UK. The law in the UK is the law in the UK. And in England and Wales, to have a fire, you need landowner's permission. I didn't just make that up. There isn't a way of circumventing it. You need the permission, either granted personally or granted because it's a campsite that allow, allows fires. So there are some campgrounds that you can go to and have a fire. Um, it might be in a fire pit, but you can have a fire. There are, those places do exist and you can search for them on the internet. But the advice, you know, you're asking me for my advice. I wrote 3000 word article on that. And I think you probably need to go and read it again because it wasn't blanket advice for people who want to go and do everything. Yeah. Um, I think maybe you've misinterpreted that, that I said you need landowners permission to do all of the things. No, it's actually quite, you know, it gives you suggestions on every level about things that you can do without permission. So you can forage for berries without permission. You can, you talk about wanting to practice your navigation anywhere you're allowed to walk in the UK, um, you know, public rights away, um, open access land, all those places, you can go and practice your navigation skills. Um, in terms of camping, the rules on camping are a little bit of a, of a gray area. Um, the law, strictly speaking, in England and Wales, says that you can't, the right to roam doesn't extend to, even in areas where there is a right to roam, doesn't extend to camping. Again, you should have landowner's permission. That said, in upland areas, so areas, um, in the hills, so places like the Lake District, places like North Wales, places like the Peak District, um, many of the upland areas in the UK, you can camp, particularly if it's just for a night and the landowner doesn't really mind. Um, in, in general, that's generally the rule. In Scotland, it's different. In, in, in Scotland, you have the right to camp as, lo as well as the right to roam, as long as you're not interfering with economic or privacy, economic activities, you know, you're damaging crops in a field or um, in, impinging on somebody's privacy, for example, you know, you don't want to be camping in somebody's back garden. Um, but as long as you're not doing those sorts of things, you can you can camp so yes you can go and walk and camp and hike in many many places right across the uk whether you're in england wales or scotland um so the, and that advice is in that article vladimir so that i've already given you that advice um in terms of fires you need landowner's permission in england and wales in scotland you don't but some of them if there's a bylaw um like in the loch lomond and trossachs national park now you can't camp you can't have fires because they've had trouble with people leaving a mess and there's lots of political stuff going on there which i've talked about before we're not going to go into here but um most places you can have a fire but some landowners will take a dim view of it because you you put their land at risk you know if you're camping in a an ancient caledonian pine forest and you're having a fire on peaty soil that's got um uh, Scots pine roots in it that you're putting that forest at risk and they may well come and ask you to put it out out of respect for the forest because it's dangerous just in the same way as if you go to a national park in Canada and while normally you might be able to have a fire if they put a fire ban on you shouldn't have a fire that's the rules so the rules um, they are somewhat varied but at the end of the day I can't change the law there, there aren't these vast swathes of places where you can just go and do what you like in terms of having fires now you did mention 
Um, there are other people, there are the hikers and there are the bushcrafters that um, go and do these things and you want to be part of that. Well, maybe be part of that then. If you go to um, a forum like Bushcraft UK, which has existed for a long time, it, it existed before any... Um, any bushcraft groups on Facebook, it existed before Facebook, but there another option is get involved with an online community of other people that go and they have access to land as a group, maybe even if not necessarily individually, they've negotiated access, see if you can befriend them, go along to a meeting, um, a, a group camp, and you can access land that way and with a group of like-minded people. That's another thing that is that is very, very easy to do. And I know many people who have done that. And I've met many people who've come on courses with me who are involved in those in those groups. I've been invited by some groups to go and um, do weekend uh, courses for them at their venue to show them what resources are available at the venue that they use, which might be a, a scout camping ground or another piece of private land that they've negotiated access to. Um, it is possible. Um, it's about how much effort that you want to put into. Um, that I do not have some secret places that you can go to that I'm not telling you about that, that are available to everybody to go and use. They don't exist. You have to become part of a group um, that has access or you have to negotiate access yourself um, if you want to do certain things. Other things you don't need to. Um, and that article that I wrote delineates what things you need landowner's permission for and what things you don't need landowner's permission for. Fires, you need landowner's permission unearthing plants so digging up roots and what have you as opposed to picking berries and leaves you need landowner's permission um hunting and trapping and whatnot yes you need landowner's permission you also need to stay within the law you said you don't want to do that that's fine but even so some of the things you want to do you need landowner's permission i can't magic those things away there there is not some magic um secret way around that that is that's the law. Some landowners are going to be very happy for you to be there because you're going to help look after their woodland. So I don't think you're right in, in saying um, that it's not possible, it's going to be near impossible. I certainly didn't say that in my article because I, I, what I said was if you just turn up on there, there's a squirrel running through the trees above me there. Um, I, I, what I said in the article is if you just turn up on somebody's doorstep and ask can you go and light fires in their woods they may well say no just in the same way as if you turned up on somebody's doorstep and said can I light a fire in your back garden they don't know who you are they don't know if they can trust you they don't know how responsible you're going to be and they've got lots of other things on their mind so they'll probably just say no because it's easier but if you're willing to put in the effort to build a relationship you, you can now um that may or may not be worth the effort for you, but there are some case studies that I put in that article where of a couple of different people, Mark and Mo, both got access to an area of woodland for their personal use under different circumstances, but I included those as case studies to give you an idea that it is entirely possible for you to do that on a personal level, not just on a group level. So if you're willing to put in the effort to find somewhere that you want to personally go, that you can have private for yourself without anybody else around, you can do that. If you want to become a member of a group that's got access to areas where you can go and practice bushcraft skills, you can do that. Um, all of those things are possible, but they do involve you actually putting some effort in and there isn't just some um, register or list of places you can go and do what you want it doesn't exist okay it's getting dark next question this is from buzz light beer <laughs> good name um Via Twitter, quick question, your views on wild camping in Northwest England. I live in an area with a few, I live in an area with few wooded areas unless I want to go to Wales or the lakes. Um, I'm gonna make an assumption about what the question is here. Um, what do I think about wild camping? Well, you've already, you've heard the previous question, the answer to the previous question. Um, and it's an extension of that really upland areas you can typically in in northwest england especially um you know whether you, uh, cumbria is, is is in northwest england as far as i'm concerned so cumbria lakes upland areas you shouldn't have any trouble camping wild camping in most places there um wales again upland areas lots of nice areas to camp there 
In terms of having fires though, that's where you're going to come into difficulty. And again, you're probably going to need to speak to a landowner if you want to do it legally. I can't say anything other than that because that's just a fact. Um, can you find a quiet spot to go and do it without anybody noticing? Maybe, but then again, do you want to be looking over your shoulder the whole time uh, in case a gamekeeper or a landowner is going to come and take issue with what you're doing? Um, it depends on the type of experience you want to have. Um, so the law in the England, England and Wales is, um, strictly speaking, you need landowners' permission to camp. Strictly speaking, you need landowners' permission for fires. Um, in upland areas, people will probably turn a blind eye to you camping. They probably won't turn a blind eye to you having a fire. So it depends on exactly the type of camping experience you want to have, how much hassle you want to put yourself at the potential end of. Um, that's, that's all I can say. If you've got a more specific question, um, I think that's what you're getting at. But you know, I'm reading it into a tweet which um, was a bit ambiguous. If you've got a more specific question, um, drop me another line and I'm happy to, to follow up with another with another answer. Now, that um, <laughs> this is going to be quite funny because my leg has gone to sleep and I need to turn the infrared on on my camera. So as I stumble towards the camera, find the button. Where is it? There we go. I'm getting better at that. Okay. Yeah, pins and needles in my leg. <laughs> right, okay. Being blinded by headlamps. Tobias Fisher. I have a question concerning headlamps. In, in an article, you did a great job of explaining what's important. Now, before I go and buy myself one, there is another thing I'd really like to know. Is it normal to get blinded by the headlight you are wearing? No. Um, I found a cheap one somewhere at home, and while all those white LEDs definitely produce a nice white spot on the ground, I always end up seeing less than with the lights turned off, at least in a full moon night yeah well a full moon night you don't need a headlamp anyway um today i try to cut out a round piece of red foil and put it behind the lens what did indeed look pretty cool but unfortunately it subtracted way too much light and didn't even reach the floor anymore so my question is do you know this effect of getting totally blinded by the white light and would be more expensive model help um I'm, i take it you mean let me just be clear you're not being blinded directly by it being here and it just not being well shielded. Because I have seen some lights where there is so much light coming this way that you end up kind of almost being blinded by your own light directly. I think what you mean is that the, the light on the ground is so bright that that then is ruining your vision for seeing anything else. Um, but you need to look with the light. Y yeah, if you... If you, if you turn a headlight on in the dark and then turn it off again, you're going to lose your night vision and it will take 30 minutes at least to come back again. So if that's what you're talking about, yes, it is completely normal for your vision to be, um, imp your night vision to be impaired as soon as you turn a bright light on. And, and that is one of the issues that I have with people turning lights on too early when we're out in the woods because your, your eyes will naturally... Um, adjust to the falling light as mine have done here i noticed on the camera it was struggling to see me whereas i was seeing around me okay and that's why i turned the infrared on uh, infrared lamp on um my eyes are adjusting to the light and I, I can still see not as well as in in daylight but i can but whereas if i turn a bright light on and then off again i'm not going to be able to see as well so that's an important thing to understand um but if you're finding the light too bright just to even see when you're looking at something and you've got it on your head, what you should do is get a lamp where you've got an adjustable beam where you can turn it down. The, the one that I like, the one that I use, the Surefire lamp that I use, that, I linked in a, that I'll link in the article um, where I talked about that, that's got a continuously adjustable beam. So from very just slightly on to full brightness, it's a continuous beam. I like that because I can adjust it to exactly the brightness that I want, whether I'm reading close up, whether I'm looking at something medium distance or whether I want a powerful beam for looking further. Um, that's good but equally a lot of lamps have three settings at least you know the the, the cheaper lamps like you know some of the petzl lamps you can you turn it on you press it again and it goes brighter you press it again it goes brighter still you press it again and it goes back to the first setting Th that should give you enough flexibility particularly if you're on a budget to, to get the brightness that you want um 
so so yes and if you want to then maybe if you if you think that even on the lightest the, the, the least bright setting it's going to be not very um, conducive to you seeing otherwise get one with a flip up filter you know red filter you can get some with a flip up red filter that will it will make it less bright but it also means it won't um, impair your in your vision as much the other little trick that you can do is um, when you uh, turn a lamp on is close one of your eyes and you can experiment with whether or not you feel better keeping your dominant eye closed or your non-dominant eye closed but one thing you can do is, is, is really clamp shut one of your eyes while you turn your headlamp on look at what you're looking at turn your headlamp off and then open your eye and then you're still going to have reasonable night vision in the eye that you kept closed that's another trick that i use when i'm out and about in the woods so maybe sometimes i have to look at a map in the dark even with a red filter on i'm going to damage my uh, night vision a little bit i'll close one of my eyes quite hard and then i can still see once i turn my light off so hopefully those comments are helpful. If I completely misunderstood your question, let me know. All right, this is the last question. And this is via Instagram. And this is from Gavin Henry. Good to hear from you, Gavin. So Gavin has sent me a, an image of um, an excerpt from a, uh, a paper, I think with a chart in it and um, his question is applying invest most in knowledge that is durable so that's in inverted commas invest most in knowledge that is durable from software engineering for bushcraft what areas would you recommend for long-term benefit as a foundation of bushcraft knowledge versus knowledge that needs continually updating and he's put a link through there to the essay that he's um, that he's quoting from or referring to uh, by Ben Northrop, bennorthrop.com, um, essays, reflections of an old programmer. And so basically, um, he's looking at this article, looking at the advice for investing in knowledge, which is durable and there is a chart there of knowledge retention at different stages of progression in a in a knowledge base or a skill set um well i've talked about my skills list before i think that's a good place to start um i linked that up in the previous episode i'll link it up here again um that was part of my uh, bushcraft show presentation last year where people could download that skills list um 15 page document with bulleted list I, that is a core list that i think you can you can work on some things are more durable than others um, you know understanding how to light fires recognizing the right sort of resources once you've got that down you've got that down um, other skills in bushcraft such as tracking tracking is a um that is a perishable skill um it takes you a while to get into it and it does it does um diminish if you don't practice it um but then of course there is there's a question of how long it takes you to get up the curve with something in the first place and then how long it takes you to to replenish that if you don't practice it for a while and most of these skills even if they are somewhat perishable they do take they don't take a huge amount to get you back up the curve and the more time you practice them the, the quicker you'll get back up the curve but i think that skills list is a core list of practical hard skills mainly i think one of the things that takes time is tree and plant identification um, and i would recommend that you start that early and just chip away at it and layer on and layer on and layer on each year rather than suddenly going right this year i'm going to learn everything there is to know about tree and plant identification because you'll you'll get into a state of overwhelm your memory doesn't work like that you're much better off chipping away at it chipping away at it chipping away at it layering on and reinforcing when you go out um you know through the year identity you know even if it's just out walking the dog having a look at what's in your locale, um, go back, um, refer to some guidebooks, go back out again, see if you can recognize them the next time and just layer up on top, on top, on top. And then once, once you've got that level of knowledge, it's a little bit like learning to use a language. If you're using it all the time, then you'll remember it. Um, and so if you're out and about and you can recognize the, the local trees and plants, then every time you go out for a walk with your dog or walk with your kids or 
you know, walking to the bus stop and you see something, you can go, yep, yeah, that's birch, that's Norway spruce, that's a peduncular oak, that's, um, that's a common beech, that's common ash, that's rowan, that's, you know, all of these common trees that you're going to see, you know, learn those and then you can reinforce, reinforce, reinforce. But if you try and learn everything in one year, particularly if it's stuff that isn't even in your area, might be just somewhere where you go and visit occasionally, you're not going to get as far in the long run. So I would say core skills, tree and plant ID is important, starting to learn some animal tracks and sign is good, spending time looking at na nature. Um, so if you see an animal, you see a bird in an area where it may have left some tracks or sign, go and see where it was, see if you can see, link what you saw with the, of the activity, of the um, of the actions of the animal or the bird, whether it's taking off from snow or landing in, in the sand next to the water or moving around um, on the water's edge or whatever it is, somewhere where there's going to be a track trap where they've left a track, you know, foot, a clear print ID of their footprint, go and have a look and then you link that knowledge, that, that identification of the species with the identification of the um, of the uh, of the actual track and the thing is you can try and force that you can just go right okay I'm going to spend two weeks out in the wilds you know trying to see as much as I can and you will learn a lot from that but some of those some of those circumstances some of those encounters with wildlife are by chance and um, yes you can increase the chances of them happening um, by spending more time out in a given period but also just going out regularly at different times of the year you're going to increase your chances of having those chance encounters when you know maybe one week an animal wasn't in the area you could have spent all week there and it wasn't there the next week it maybe was in the area or undertaking certain activities certain feeding activities at certain types of the year mating activities at certain types of the year sometimes animals are more bold than others sometimes they're trying to distract you from their young you know the more time out throughout the year you spend so i would say core skills hard skills look at my skills list and then in terms of knowledge of your environment just chip away at it but do it in a do it in a fairly structured way of i wonder what this is be inquisitive try and identify it use field guides learn as much as you can about identifying what's around you in terms of plants trees animals fungi birds fish insects just learn to, to be inquisitive, learn to identify things, learn to be able to interpret your environment, and then you're linking the hard skills with the resources and the environment, and that takes time. And it is perishable to an extent, but equally, you get the core things in place, and then you can reinforce on a regular basis, just like using a language on a daily basis, um, it keeps it in mind. So th those are my thoughts, those are my thoughts. But get that skills list as a starting point. All right, that brings us to the end, I think. Let me just double check I haven't missed one this time, like I missed one last time. But I think that brings us to the end. Uh, tinders, shelters, roofs, smocks versus anoraks, woods, you can bushcraft in the UK, while camping in Northwest England, being blinded by headlamps, foundational bushcraft knowledge, and bushcraft shows and events we did at the beginning. That was the one I missed last time. So everything covered this time, and uh, thanks for your attention. Um, do keep following me on Instagram. People have been asking about my online trainings. The tree and plant course will be uh, opening fairly soon if you are not on my mailing list. paulkirtley.co.uk, sign up to any of the main mailing list forms. There's one in the, the top right hand corner of pretty much every page on my website and there are some popovers which appear occasionally sign up to that onto my mailing list when that course is open and when other courses are open i will send out the details there's no obligation basically all i do is i send out an email saying if you if you're interested in this click this link and leave me your email there contact details there and i'll let you know when it's open and there's no obligation it's really just a case of making sure the right people get the right information i don't want to spam everybody all the time with everything that's why i ask you to go to certain places and state your interest it's not that um i'm trying to get you to make some sort of commitment that i that you don't otherwise want to make it's just that i want to send you the information that you want 
and Dave the information that he wants and Sandra the information that she wants and you know that's what all those email systems are for so um, I try and do that uh, as much as possible so get on my main mailing list where you'll get all the updates to my blogs including the Ask Paul Kirtley's when they come out including other useful information a lot of the questions that get asked on Ask Paul Kirtley refer to material that's on my blog so it's all useful stuff to, to have access to I, I'd basically send out an email when there's something new on there and maybe give a bit more context about it or a bit more information about it than you get just from the article so it's useful being on that mailing list and then occasionally when I do have something that I want to offer that is paid I'll send one email out that says if you're interested go over here let me know and then I'll send you that information and if you don't go over there and don't say you're interested you won't get it so I'm not bothering people that it's not the right time for or it's not the right program for as I said in the previous episode all of these things come together in a mesh to get you to where you want to be. There are some core skills which I think most people would benefit from learning if they're going to be involved in bushcraft at all. Um, and then there are other areas which you can extend into depending on your level of interest, the amount of time you've got available, how you want to apply it and, and where you want to take the skills uh, ultimately. And um, whether that's as a, you know, a serious leisure interest or a professional interest, there's lots and lots of different resources that I've got available to you. So the so starting point is get on my mailing list at paulkirtley.co.uk and then put your hand up for the things that you're interested in in addition to that and I'll make sure that I get them to you and you get the stuff that you need to take you further up the curve in your own bushcraft journey all right well it's getting pretty dark here now but um, it's fun to finish in the dark I'll go and finish the rest of my walk I've got a few fields to walk over and once I get out the woods um, looks like a nice sunset in the background evening star is already out there I can see so I'm looking forward to the rest of my walk and I will leave you to the rest of your day and um, great to be great to be starting the year with another Ask Paul Kirtley and I will see you again soon take care and enjoy the outdoors bye <laughs>